This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email Chuck at Going in Circles Podcast at gmail.com and log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Welcome to Going in Circles, horse racing's newest podcast. I'm your host, Charles Simon. You can find me daily at Twitter at Cannon Shell. Today is our our, uh, our first show and done in an actual studio in a professional manner. KCG has been kind enough to uh, produce the show now, and uh, we also have a we have a guest, a special guest. Um, guest who I feel responsible for bringing into the industry by pulling him out of the University of Kentucky and making him a hot walker and he went on to uh, train famous horses and famous places and do all kinds of sorts of things and big media mogul our first guest Chad Summers welcome Chad thank you so much Charles I appreciate it that's the first time I think I've ever called you Charles in my life you know you're in good hands with Casey Casey's been doing a great job for years well, he makes Steve Bick sound good, so you know the guy's got to have some talent. <laughs> Chad, how is how are things in New York? Well, they've been better, that's for sure. I mean, I think uh, obviously we've all been up against it with with COVID nineteen and everything that's going on, but you know we've seen other racetracks kind of get back to it. We've just started now a couple weeks ago and full fields and. Tough, uh, tough times, and we're all just trying to kind of keep our heads down and see what see what lies next. Obviously, the big topic of discussion coming up here: Belmont Stakes, no owners here, Saratoga with New Zealand. We got a lot of uh, a lot of question marks here in the state of New York right now. Yeah, the uh, the no owners thing. I thought kind of. Uh, I mean, it's easy, of course, to judge sitting here in in my chair with uh, no responsibility, but. It seems like they should have been able to work out at least the the owners of the Belmont horses in particular to be able to at least come on the grounds and, and uh, watch their horse race and maybe get in the winner circle with them. Um, I, I understand safety protocols, all that crap, but, you know, where does the will, there's a way, and uh, I understand the New York State government's probably not the easiest people to deal with, but... It seems like, um, uh, you know, a tough a tough thing to do to have a classic race and have your owners not be able to to be there in attendance in a at, at a track like Belmont, which you know you you could probably take most of the owners of horses in New York all together and have them at Belmont and then have them be all that close. It's a huge facility and uh, it's a shame, but. In the end, the horses are the stars, and and uh, and uh, the race seems to have come apart a little bit since it was announced uh, the date and the distance. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a lot of crazy things going on. First of all, I mean, when you talk about the owners, you know, I, obviously, look, safety safety comes first. But I mean, with with the edit testing that we have now, you know, you can sit there and you can test, you can get a COVID test pretty easily at this point in time now, especially here in the state of New York, we've tested more than anybody. And you talk about the size of Belmont Park. I mean, you get 100,000 people here easily on Belmont Stakes Day. So 
you know, you can probably, have, you know, you talk about six feet distance, social distancing. You can have 600 feet and still have all the owners of the Belmont Stakes horses here and, and, and have plenty of distance and plenty of space, and everybody would still be able to have a good time while, while maintaining all the safety protocols, even if they weren't allowed uh, in the paddock. Uh, I think just the fact that they can come out and see their horses ramp. I mean, when you talk about the Belmont Stakes and the history of the Belmont Stakes, and, you know, the fact of the matter is, Chuck, this is one of the, the major races in, in America, year in and year out. People, you know, would give anything to, to have a horse in the Triple Crown race. Uh, and you have some people, you know, especially you look at the favorites. Here's the last Sacatoga Stable. You know, the, the, the partners they have, they're, they're New York-based partnership. They didn't pay a fortune for this horse. They'd rather win the Belmont Stakes than the Kentucky Derby probably if you ask them. And, and they're looking for revenge from Funnyside getting beat at the Belmont Stakes. And, and they can't be here to enjoy it. And I know they're going to be up in Saratoga, and they're going to be in Pinnells, and they're not going to be socially distancing up there, especially when the horse comes down the stretch. But, you know, man, it would be so great to, to, to have Jack Nolton and the whole gang over here. Uh, I know Dean Reeves, uh, they made the decision late for Phil Lampe to come up here, and, and he's quoted on the record saying, listen, I'm not happy that I can't come and, and, and watch my horse run. He bought into this horse uh, after the debut race, specifically to try and make a a triple crown like race. He's been there before with Mucho Macho Man. And, you know, this is such a sport that's built on passion, that's built on emotion. You know, this is not a numbers sport. If you're an accountant geek and, and you just want to run numbers, this probably isn't the place for you. But if you're a passionate person who, who loves the game and loves the sport like, like you and I do, Chuck, uh, it, it's tough to sit there and say, you know, you can't come watch your horse run. You can watch him run on TV. It's a very, very difficult pill to swallow, and I do understand the safety concerns, but I do feel like this is definitely something that should have been addressed long ago. I mean, look, we've been closed since, I think, March 13th or something like that. Uh, no one has been able to get back here to see their horses, even, you know, on a drive-by in a car or something like that. It's very, very difficult. And, and you know, part of the sales, I, I believe I understand the sales, you know, in Ocala did okay last week, but I do feel like some owners, you know, we're a little gun shy from buying horses because they're not able to see their horses, and 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 they've been very, very disappointed at, at what's been going on right now. Yeah, it's, it's a tough situation, and I don't want to really cast aspersions on anyone. I don't really want to blame anyone because I I don't know what the the details are behind the scenes, and you know, Naira's in a tough spot, and they don't want to piss off the governor, but uh, sure, but um, it just seems like. They could have made room for the fifty, sixty, eighty people, whatever. But uh, whether whether it happens or not, I mean, it's not the end of the world. I mean, they, they, there are some bizarre things going on in New York. I know at Yonkers, they're trying to start racing back up, and they're declaring that anyone in the paddock has to have a positive <laughs> test, <laughs> which which seems kind of bizarre that you actually have, have to be a, a positive test. So if you did the right thing and, and you avoided the uh, um, you know, you avoided getting exposed to the virus, uh, you're not allowed to play anymore. Which... So does this mean that Ezekiel Elliott, since he tested positive for the Cowboys... If he needed to make extra money, he could pad a course at Yonkers. Yes, he couldn't drive, because drivers, I guess, are exempt from that, but okay. he could he could, he could could work paddocking horses or... or maybe, right. you know, if he needed a little bit of extra dough, but he'll probably <laughs> be okay. But um, the Bellman itself... Um, the field is kind of uh, kind of falling apart, uh, <laughs> lack of a better word. And I think part of it is because the 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 uncertainty 
of the last few months of training when there wasn't really goals for these horses and you know you have these rapidly developing three-year-olds they're turning from boys to men and you don't have any idea where you're going to run and you know you know as a trainer that when you have one of these horses that's really doing super it's hard to just uh you know put them on ice and like when you start cranking them back up sometimes you know things happen and uh they get these little minor things and and I think that's that's what the Belmont has kind of fallen victim to, you know, a little bit of bad luck. But uh, I remember the chief used to say, he goes, you know, I don't get these people that are pointing for races six months from now. He goes, you know, I can't just put the horse in the freezer and thaw them out when the race comes up, you know. I mean, I like to run them when they're doing good, which is kind of a, a theory that doesn't doesn't hold water as much anymore, though Mark Cassie is, uh, and, and B.N. Cohn are both trying that out. Uh, running horses back quick off of uh, what would now be considered short layoffs off of really strong races. Um, well, I mean, you look at you look at the situation. You talk about Chief. I mean, Chief sat there right at Saratoga and said, "Man, you know what? I don't think Secretary's doing so good. I just watched him gallop. I'm going to go ahead and enter running in the race. Right, the day of the race, he decided to put the horse in and win the race. So, you know, I, I think things are definitely different at this stage. The thing that surprises me the most about the Belmont Stakes is. The amount of horses that are pointing for the bluegrass right now, um, it's still two months away from the Kentucky Derby. It's not necessarily a normal prep like it would be. And, and yet you see three, four, five horses declaring out of the Belmont States and, and deciding to point for the bluegrass. Honestly, I, I think that has more to do with the timing than anything. I think the Belmont came up a little quick in that, mm-hmm. you know, we had, what, about a little over three and a half weeks from the announcement of when it was going to be. So... You had, uh, and I'm sure most of the trainers of the top horses had an inkling of, of what was going on because, uh, you know, they were asked their opinions on, on certain things. But it's hard to just, you know, crank the horse right back, you know, horses who are kind of been in a holding pattern right back up and, and get them ready for a classic type race. And uh, I think the bluegrass gave them more time. And I think that is, you know, that's my opinion. I don't have. Uh, no one's called me up and said this is why I did it, but that seemed to be um, the 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 way the best path to the Derby. And, and let's face it, the Derby is the Triple Crown. The Belmont is not the Belmont without having a Triple Crown on the line. It's a great race, obviously. The Preakness is always has a Triple Crown on the line, so they're in that middle, you know, that middle territory. And this year they're going to be at the end and. Uh, I mean, if we get to a situation where different horses win the Belmont and the Derby, the Preakness, with its placement by the Breeders' Cup, might be um, might not be as strong as as it as a, a normal Preakness would be too. I mean, based upon uh, you know the way trainers train, the way that guys look to give horses time, you might see more horses that performed good in the Derby but didn't win train up. To the um, to the uh, the Breeders' Cup Classic, especially uh, in a year that uh, the the older horses doesn't look to have a lot of great deal of depth. No, I listen. I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, it's a kind of, it's kind of a strange world when we're talking about the bluegrass in July and. Uh, the Preakness and, and Well, look, October I mean, the, look, the perfect example is Kennedy, Kennedy Peaks Philly. 
who just continues to get better and better the Daredevil silly, right? I mean, she might win all four major prep races for the Kentucky Oaks. That'll never happen again. No, right, right. No, it's it's definitely a, an odd year, and uh, it's one of the reasons why I think the hand ringing about making the Belmont a mile on an eighth this year was was kind of misguided, and that it it's just you know this is an unprecedented season, and you know you're making the best of the situation. And if this race is a mile and a half, I mean we might see a five horse field this week. Um, well, I mean, look, they're the traditional South here. I think that plays a role in it. But, I mean, the, the bigger issue is, you know, Churchill changed their date without consulting the Freakness, without consulting the Belmont. And, and so I think there's been a lot of back and forth because right now we just don't have that one person, that one body who represents the entire good of, of racing. No. And the problem with that is that we're never going to have that because racing – isn't set up like other sports. The NFL is owned by the 32 owners. It's a consortium. They own the 32 franchises that make up the NFL. They own everything. All the equipment is owned by them or, you know, sweetheart leased from the state or city. But the commissioner works for the owners. The uh, the players work for the owners. The coaches work for the owners. The, the trainers work for the owners. The guys in the sidelines that hold the the sticks, they work for the owners. The ball boys work for the owners. The the head groundskeeper works for the owners. Everyone works for the owners. And racing is is made up of completely different independent um, organizations, so to speak. The trainers are all independent. The owners are all independent. The tracks are independent. The jockeys are independent. We all need each other to... Um, participate to, to to make the game go, but none of us really answer to the other ones. And that's you know we're, we don't have a real employee employer situation, and that's what a commissioner is. A commissioner is not a czar that has um, unfettered ability to just dictate and and, and regulate as they see fit. It's a fallacy, and, and so many people in racing desire that, but they don't understand in sports that, that that's not what happens. Look at baseball. Baseball is a gigantic mess. And they have a commissioner, and the commissioner is being called out by the players as being a stooge for the owners because that's exactly <laughs> what he is, a stooge. And, I mean, this is a situation, it, it, it's actually reminiscent of racing, where you have, you know... Billions of dollars of revenues just sitting there waiting to be had. You have a, a, a public that's hungry for, for live sports, and these guys can't decide how to play. We have a commissioner in baseball, and guess what? It doesn't matter. And racing is not set up to have a commissioner. And the problem with racing is that uh, Everybody wants to talk about the greater good, and we can go on podcasts and radio shows and TV and we'll talk about, yeah, let's, you know, rising tides, rise all ships, blah, blah, blah. The problem is it requires sacrifice, and not sacrifice from the people that don't have anything to sacrifice. It requires sacrifice from the people that have the power, that have the money, that have the the best dates, that have all the, the strongest races, that have the best horses. If they're not willing to sacrifice, then nothing's going to ever change. 
And that is the problem with racing, is that we spend more time calling for a central body to you know, govern when that's not going to happen. There's not going to be a central body that's going to come in and tell Churchill when they're going to run. Churchill will say, we're a publicly traded company. We don't care what you say. This is what we're going to do. And if you don't like it, we'll just close up that track or we'll close our, we'll close the Churchill Downs for all but three days. And a federal commission wouldn't, what could they do actually? What could they actually do? Um, you would have the power, the problem of, I mean, neither of us are political science majors, but you know, there's a states' rights um, a part to this in that there's racing isn't the only uh, industry that's regulated on a state-to-state basis. I mean, most notably the insurance business. And I know there's been a lot of arguments that allowing insurers to sell across state lines would be a, a big, huge positive for consumers, but it never happens because states aren't going to give up that, that regulatory right. And... I think that uh, they would fight any attempt to have um, a, uh, a federal, you know, transferring the power, the regulatory power from the states to the federal level for horse racing. I, I think they would fight it because they would see that as a first step to doing it in, in other categories. Not, not that. I mean, I mean, let's face it. What are the odds that if we did have some kind of, um, you know, centralized Authority that we would hire the right people. I mean, come on, you know who we'd hire. We'd hire a lackey for somebody because that's always what happens. And you know, the people with power want their guy in there, and that's that's what would happen. And and in the end, nothing would change. It would just be, uh, it would just be a different king instead of the the, the multitude of kings we have now. Well, I think I think the, the big thing, Chuck, is. If you look at it almost like the, the NFL and the AFL, right? The, the NFL and the AFL were fine on their own running independently. But when they merged, and it was a big sacrifice from the AFL to do so, right? I mean, they, they were sacrificing. And at the end of the day, it's worked out very well for the Kansas City Chiefs and those teams and, you know, merging together. Yeah, it would be a tremendous sacrifice. And none of the states want to make that sacrifice because they're all looking at their own best interests. But when it comes to the thoroughbred industry, and, and it talks about breeding, sales, racing, stallion, all of it, there needs to be more teamwork, more communication, more people working together. Uh, and the ABC, you know, different, different organizations, their sacrifices need to be made because if they're not made, I mean, this sport is in, is in a lot, a lot of hard trouble. I mean, we talk about baseball being a mess. But at least we talk about baseball. I mean, there was still horse racing going on during this pandemic, and if you watch Sports Center, you'd have no idea. The, the, the biggest story that we've had on all of Sports Center while this was going on was the virtual Kentucky Derby that Secretariat won. The virtual, yeah, not yeah. any other races that were going on or anything right. else. I think the I think the virtual Derby was run the same day as the Arkansas Derby, and the virtual <laughs> Derby got all the coverage. Um, <laughs> But that's that's you know like you're 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 preaching to the choir. I mean, I've been saying this for years, but people don't want to listen. Like you said, baseball. The Los Angeles Dodgers had four million people show up at their games last year. I mean, did racing get four million people total with all the tracks if you counted actual people through the the the, the grant the uh, the turnstiles? Probably not. Um, 
but there's a, a certain um there's a, one of the things that the pandemic did do is is it did show that uh there is a core group of people who are going to bet on races regardless of of uh of the quality of them even when when you look at the Fonner Park numbers the Will Rogers Down numbers when they're the only game in town literally the only game in town with no other sports to bet on with casinos closed with card rooms closed you know the numbers that they did showed that there is still that core group um you know the handle numbers have been pretty much in line with previous years even though there's a the number of races has has been far far smaller than uh than you know it has been with so many more tracks closed but uh you know, we don't do a great job of, of catering to those people who are our core customers. I mean, just this week, Jerry Bailey comes out and and says something about the whip rule, and and uh, and I'm not going to debate the merits of the whip rule because it just gets to be tedious. But his reasoning, or part of his reasoning, was that well, we might be able to draw fans that were offended by our old rules, and and I'm thinking to myself. What what what's the core audience of people that are offended by our rules that have been waiting on the sidelines, sitting there saying, "Hey, you know, I'm ready to bet now because you know the whipping rule has been changed." I mean, we're not ta- we're, we're talking like zero people, and I think that there's this huge disconnect between um, in in a lot of racing between fans and people who are betting on our races and i think that often when they talk about fans they are backhandedly slapping the face of our customers who see that as a slap in the face and i don't know that they even realize they're doing it and it's nice to go to saratoga and have a huge crowd and it's nice that the derby and the triple crown and the big event days have huge crowds but we need the core player, the guy who's going to play this weekend and next weekend and the next weekend, and he's going to play on Thursdays and he's going to play on Mondays. Those guys, they're, they're our core customer, and they've been used and abused for so long that it's just routine for people in the business to just kind of uh, flippantly say, well, you know, we got to take care of the fans. Well, you know, we haven't, you know, taken care of our customers and it's just uh it just seems as though so many people in racing just don't consider where the revenue is coming from and that seems to not have changed even though it's painfully obvious and there's been I mean there's been more talk about that in the last five years than probably the previous 50 years at least in the public forum which is what social media does it gives um it gives topics like that legs to stand on and it it gives them at least some light though you know how much um the people with the real power the real authority the real chance to do something actually listen to that I, i i'm guessing not a whole lot well i mean i think a lot of that comes from the fact that the, the front side and the management of people, uh, you know, management of these racetracks, many of them don't have a racing background. Many of them 
are not fans first. They're not gamblers first. They're not horse people first, right? So, you know, if, if they come from Toys R Us or wherever they come from, they don't they don't understand the industry and they're not brought up to speed properly on the industry. And so you're, you're fighting a losing fight from the beginning uh, to go into anything. Any other industry hires within, and there are people that spend their lives doing this, and, and we don't. We hire from the outside. We bring people in from, from other walks of life and think that they're going to just, uh, you know, acclimate. And, and the one thing about horse racing is it's a passion-based business. And if you're not passionate about it, it's difficult to be uh, a top leader in the industry. I, I wholeheartedly believe that. And, you know, perfect example to piggyback on what you're saying in regards to uh, taking care of the core player. Uh, I remember, you know, if you go to Atlantic City, if you go to Las Vegas, uh, and you're on a hot streak, the hotel quickly, they're going to comp your room, they're going to comp your dinner, they're going to bring a bottle of champagne, they're happy for you. You know, become a VIP. Over here, if you hit a ticket for a signer, you hit a big pick six, you have to walk to this one isolated window, which is, you know, a desolate spot with a guy who's 100 running the window. He's, you need three forms of ID. He needs to take your picture. Uh, and then you have to, like, sneakily uh, get away, you know, without anybody seeing you housing a duffel bag of money. Instead of celebrating this uh, this achievement, this accomplishment of, of hitting the, the rainbow six or whatever the situation might be. And and that, that's something that I think the poor player does not get enough appreciation when they have a good day. Yeah, you know, some of these now, the, the Naira Bets of the world and things like that, they give you some rebates, they give you some, some chances to, to get the money back. But it's not, it's never a feeling of, of you're special and you're wanted. I think most, most guys, most guys that play seriously would be satisfied if we had fewer late changes of track surfaces and uh, questionable stewards' decisions. If we could just get those two things uh, fixed, or at least uh, mitigated to the point where it's it's a monthly uh, debate instead of a daily debate, that, sure. that that's a pretty you know that that's one of the things that uh, that needs to be done. But you know, like I, I've got a million views about the stewards and what could be done to improve there, but we don't have time. Well, to I think that's that the one thing that a lot of people are looking forward to your podcast about. I mean, Chuck, you you're someone who's who's been in this industry for a long time and, and participated at a lot of different levels at the top level and, and in many different states and seen many things. And, 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 you know, as soon as the word came out about your podcast starting and, you know, invitations were being uh, disseminated on Facebook and stuff like that, the amount of people that right away, you know, signed up to, to join and, and to, to listen to your podcast, I, I think we're looking to you to, to, to share those views throughout <laughs> your time on this podcast. In, in talking about the story, in talking about the stuff that that the normal radio show podcast just won't talk about. I think a lot of them think I might freak out and start swearing like a madman, <laughs> <laughs> which might happen. Will you, will, will you kick a bucket? Uh, there, there's uh, well, I see a couple buckets in here, but uh, I don't want to. I don't want to make Casey clean up after me. I'm, I've made enough of a mess already. But uh, Chad, thank you for your time. And uh, you got anything? You got any winners for us this week at Belmont? Listen, I love a horse on Saturday. Maybe, you know, one to nine, one to 99, but they said a short price is better than a long face, and that's Indian pride for Chad Brown and a uh, never win one X allowance race at Belmont on Saturday.
Saturday. All right. Listen, uh, it was a, a pleasure having you on. Next time you come on, do not be giving out Chad Brown chalk, please. We can figure that shit out for ourselves. <laughs> listen, I'm, I'm trying to start out. We're trying to beat those kind of horses, man. No one's going to listen if we pay. Listen, uh, the the guy with the funny shirts on the FS1 show, he had to he had to block 400 people because they called him a chalk eater. So I, I don't want to be in that situation. <laughs> All right, how, how about this? How about Doctor Post up at the Belmont Stakes? Yeah. Okay. Chad, thank you. You got it. All right. See you later. All right. And we are going to go to a short break and be back in a minute. This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email Chuck at goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Okay, welcome back to the program, Going in Circles we have a special, special guest coming up, um, Hall of Fame jockey, my friend, Jose Santos. Jose, welcome to the program. How are you doing, guys? Thank you for having me on your program. Uh, my, my pleasure. Um, everyone knows you as a Hall of Fame jockey, Jose, but uh, tell everybody what you're doing now. Uh, what are you doing uh, to keep yourself right busy? Now, I am working with a fee company. I am manager the South Florida, um, um, the South Florida part of uh, the company. Right, right. A little bit different than than riding, huh? Yeah, so I got something to do. You know, got me in touch with everybody in the right track. Get up in the morning and and see everybody mingling and have fun. I've seen you drive a forklift. You're pretty good. You're better than me. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I used to have a company when I was a kid with my father, but we don't have the same equipment they have in America, so uh, <laughs> I got a learning. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Um, what uh, what year? What, what, when did you you started uh, in Chile? Uh, what? How I old were you? In, I was fifteen years old. I started in October twenty fourth, nineteen seventy six. Yeah, you know the exact date. I wasn't even born then. Yes. Actually, that's not true. But <laughs> uh, and and you came to America what year? That was January third, nineteen eighty four. And where did you start? I started in uh, Miami. I started in Hialeah, actually. Yes, yeah, sir. Who was your first agent? Uh, my first agent was my brother-in-law at the time. Was. Uh, um, one of the Castaneda's brothers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You and, remember uh, Marco and Kelly Castaneda? Yes, for sure. Yeah, the the older brother. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, so when the, what was your first uh, your your big break in America? Like, what was your first horse you rode that was uh, that kind of gave you exposure and people said, "Hey, this guy's this guy's a good. He's going to be a good rider." Well, actually, it was not a horse. It was a trainer named P.G. Sims. Mm-hmm. He was and uh, uh, he was down here in Florida, and he don't speak Spanish and I don't speak English. But we was uh, <laughs> we were having a translator. <laughs> but anyway, he's the one. Uh, he had fourteen horses in his stable, and he said, "You work, you gallop all my horses, and you work and you ride them." So that's how I started. And I, 
my first race and I rode for him, I won. And then my second race, 15 days later after I won, mm-hmm. he put me in a state horse and uh, and he told me he'd be happy if the horse hit the board so he can be a, a black tie. So now the, luckily the horse won. And since then I took both. It take me, took me about six or seven months to, to work it out all the way up. Really? And um, uh, when did you leave the Florida circuit? How long were you here before you left uh, to go north? I was in Florida for 14 months. Mm-hmm. And then I made, I decided to go to New York. I, actually, I went in March to ride home for Jean Parisella. Mm-hmm. And I went to ride over there and Franz Sanabria approached to me. <clears throat> he said he just had a fallout with uh, Angel Codero. And he liked the way I write, uh, if and I would like to go to New York. And I say, that's my dream. <laughs> so it was not, there was no, no question about it I was going to go. So I came uh, to finish my weekend to back to Florida. And then the next week I went over there. And I, I really had to thank to Sanabria and, and his contact, like uh, Rick Dutroth. And Leroy Jolly, the one they gave me a big push to start in, in New York. Let me ask you about Leroy Jolly. Did he ever curse you out after a race? Never. He never did. And uh, and actually, one day I was riding a big favor, a horse named Mogambo. Mm-hmm. And he cursed the horse and he did not to me. <laughs> I was, I, he was so mean, but he was very nice with me. I don't know. Maybe he said something bad to me and I don't understand him. <laughs> <laughs> I was always scared of him when I was a kid because he always looked like he wanted to kill somebody. <laughs> but but he, yeah. was, he was a great trainer. He, he, very good trainer, though. Yeah, he had, he had so, many, so many really good horses and... Uh, you know, when people talk about the great trainers of all time, somehow or another, he he gets overlooked. But uh, he had he had a lot of really great. Oh, you, you know, he did a, uh, a Bud Light commercial <laughs> when yeah. when Bud Light commercials were were a big thing, and major sporting people were on those. He, he actually did one, but uh, that was a little before both of our times. But uh, who was uh, who was like the horse that really got you uh, like your first famous type horse? The, you know your best horse that you first got a chance to ride. That, that was uh, Manila. Manila. Nineteen yeah, nineteen eighty. The end eighty six, eighty seven. Yeah. Yeah. Manila was the horse that really put me in the map there in New York. He, he was. Uh, people people now have forgotten about him a little bit, but God, he what a what a horse, huh? Yeah, you know, we're in different eras now. Uh, I mean, I think, in my opinion, we saw the best of the races. They yeah. are right in behind of us. But uh, there were some great horses, great horsemen. And uh, the people, they don't talk about it now, you know. Yeah. They, yeah. they only remember 10 years ago, that's it. <laughs> I, I remember asking you uh, a couple of weeks ago about criminal type. And I think people forget how good that horse was, and that he beat Easy Goer and Sunday Silence uh, as four-year-olds, and he, he was actually at, at that time uh, was the best horse in America. And those two horses were, you know, basically legendary horses who people recall as as great horses. You know, partly because of their rivalry, but 
Uh, people forget mm. Criminal Type was a was a really good horse. Very, very good horse. Probably one of the best horses in that row in the main track. And uh, and the same year, like you say, he beat uh, Sunday Island and and Easy Gore. You know, beating those horses that year, he made him to be a horse of the year in 1988, I believe. Yeah, I mean, and, and if he was around now, I mean, he, the, you would think that the, he would be like a star. Oh, he, and, and now, and, and he, people don't even, you know, if you, you ask someone about a horse named Criminal Type, they look at you like you're nuts. He, he'd be better in cigar, that for sure. Let me ask you a question. Did, what was your strength as a rider in meaning that, what what, uh, what do you think you were best at? Sprints, turf, long, fillies? Uh... I like them all. I like them all, but my favorite distance was a mile, and my favorite, it, it was riding in the grass. Um, I don't know, maybe because I wrote a lot of for Christopher Clemon, and he brought, he brought to America all those good European horses. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, I, I was no more for being a better rider in the grass, but I can do anything. I can go to the lead, I can go from behind and the slop, you name it. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, that was kind of your, you were known as a rider who could ride any horse. Uh, yeah. Let me ask you a question. You watch races now. What do you think about the, um, how aggressively guys allow horses to drift and, and to, to lug out and lug in? And uh, I mean, what's your, your feeling on that? But uh, you know, horses had their own, their own mind and, and ride the right, completely different now. They are uh, different school. Uh, I believe the old school was a lot better. You know, you treat the horses a lot better. And now, with all this problem they have with the drugs and uh, and people get in trouble because uh, of uh, you don't hear much in the old days. I mean, it was more, there was a better horseman 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I think one of the problems, and this affects jockeys as well as, as trainers, is that when you get all the good horses in the hands of a few people, it doesn't leave much for anyone else. And the jockeys that are riding for those outfits have... You know, huge lists of horses of, of top horses to to ride. They're always riding the favorite, and it doesn't leave much for the for the jockeys um, in the second tier, where before the the horses were divided up amongst a lot of trainers, and you know right. everyone everyone had their trainer. You know, Eddie Maple was Woody Stevens' guy, and Jerry Bailey was Mac Miller's guy, and. You were, you know, Scotty yeah. Schulhofer's guy. But and... at the same time, you got to remember, they used to have only 40 to 50 horses. Right. Now, the trainer, they can have as many as they want. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, trying to get hot like a Chad Brown, so every owner wants to have horses with the better horses with Chad Brown. So, I mean, they don't give you a chance to to little guy to have 10 horses or 20 horses. And, and it's a huge problem. I wish they would come back and let the trainers to have 50 horses the most. And they're going to be a better horses, better horsemen, and better competitions. I, I agree 100%. I remember when I was working for the, for the chief, 
we would get over our stall allotment at Belmont. We we were assigned 44 stalls, and you know the chief he'd forget sometimes to tell me horses were coming in, and we'd wind up with 46 or 47, and, and the stall man would come over, and, and he never wanted to talk to him. He always wanted to talk to me, and he would he would complain. He says, you know, you guys are over your limit. And I said to him one day, I said, you see the name on that stable? That's Alan Jerkins stable. So you tell Alan Jerkins he's over the limit. Don't tell me. Well, just give him a message. I said, I'm not getting yelled at for you. <laughs> no, thank you. You go tell him we're, we're two or three over the limit, and then, and, and, you know, you face the consequences. But now there right. there, there is no limit. I mean, there's right, no, no limit at no all. Anyways, Jose, it sounds like you have got your hands full, and uh, I appreciate the time today. And uh, thank you for being on the show and being as candid as you are. And uh, have a good good rest of the day. Thank you, Chuck. I really appreciate it. And, and you can call me anytime, buddy. All right. Thanks, Jose. Uh-huh. All right. Take care. Okay, everyone. That was Jose Santos, Hall of Fame jockey. And uh, as he said, rider of the Great Manila. One of the, if not the best turf wars that, uh, that I ever saw. I wanted reach out to people that are listening and uh i'm soliciting your your input i want to know what you want me to talk about i want to know who you want me to talk to and uh, if you uh send me a, a message an email going in circles podcast at gmail.com and let me know uh, your feelings about the show and uh no no don't pull any punches and, uh, you know, constructive criticism is needed to make things better. Um, that's, that's kind of where I want to, uh, want to do is, is make things better and spend, uh, spend time trying to get the best guests on to try to ask them the questions that you want asked and to try to find information and things that you're not going to just find somewhere else. Um, we also haven't quite set up our schedule of how many shows we're going to do. Right now, we're going to probably do one podcast a week and expand from there as we we need to. Um, but we also uh, want to know uh, if, if there's enough uh, material and, and, and topics out there to do more than one a week, then, then we certainly will, will do that. Um, so please... Feel free to uh, give me any ideas that you've had. Uh, a couple people have already reached out and given me some some good ideas for the future. And uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be a, a timely topic. I mean, there's uh, my first podcast. I talk a lot about the history of racing, and I think that uh, I'd like to do some segments on some horses. Maybe a segment on a horse like Manila, who uh, who was really um, a really one of one of the first great American turf only type horses. Uh, a lot of the great turf horses um, before him, like John Henry, could could go on both surfaces. But uh, Manila was uh, he was a he was a special kind of horse. Not much of a sire, but uh, that happens. But uh, I just want people to uh, to enjoy the show, and we really want your input as to. Uh, as to what you want to hear and, and what you want to uh, to talk about, and no no subject is is off limits. We'll uh, we'll you know we'll ask the tough questions if we need to. So please uh, give me your input. 
going in circles podcast at gmail.com or you could uh you could certainly uh put a message up on uh, our facebook page or um you know if you uh see me at the track when the tracks are back open you can just scream at me and ask tell me what you want to hear but um that's uh that's a wrap on today's show uh i want to thank chad summers for uh for coming on and helping me kick it off and uh jose santos for uh for being um our first uh our first guest of uh, of notes sorry jed but um hopefully uh we can uh we can do more as we go along all right thank you for listening and uh we'll be back next week on going in circles <laughs>